pray. God, I ask that by the power of your spirit, your word would go forth and that it would achieve everything that you have sent it to do in us today. God, may your word be a blessing to those that hear it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, boys and girls of every age, I'm going to ask that you draw close, put your listening ears on, because this morning we are going to start by hearing a story. So I'll read the words and you can look at the pictures, okay? Once upon a time, there was a boy named Stephen. He was often alone and he felt the impact of his parents' divorce deeply. He longed for a friend, but he didn't have one. So he created one out of his longing and loneliness and sorrow. And this imaginary friend became a constant companion. He saw the boy cry and felt his pain and shared his loneliness as only an imaginary friend can do. As time went by, even though Stephen outgrew his need of this friend, this friend stayed with Stephen, and Stephen never forgot him. Well, if you are visiting with us for the first time, or if you've been away for a bit and you haven't been back, we are in a sermon series this summer in Proverbs. We are looking at the wisdom of Solomon, the eternal truths of God, and we're having a little bit of fun by finding those in some of our favorite movie moments. Now, where do we get the idea for this? Well, we actually get it from Paul, the apostle. In Acts 17, as he was in Athens and he moved among the city, he found objects of art and he read poems by their poets. And so as he came to the Athenians, he was able to know a people who, like everybody, was groping to know God, was trying to find understanding. And Paul was able to use the modern-day poets, their own poets, to say, I think I know the God who you proclaim through your art. And so likewise today, we can come to our modern-day poets and artists. We call them storytellers. We call them filmmakers. They have insight into truths of God that we can agree with, that we can point to and say, I know more of God because you have given me deeper understanding. And so we'll be coming to one of our favorite movie moments in a little bit. But for now, let's go to the proverb that we have today, Proverbs 17:17. 17. It's on page 523 of your pew Bible. Now, if you are using the pew Bible, in here we use the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. Now, some of you know there are many different translations of the Bible. They all have a different, a little bit of a different nuance. Sometimes they put on eyes to see the word freshly. So be aware that this is one of the many translations of the Bible. Let's read this together, Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and kinsfolk are born to share adversity. May God add his understanding to the reading of the word. Well, friends, I've got to share a little preamble ramble with you before we get into the meat that this proverb holds. You have no idea how many times I actually prayed to God, God, would you add understanding to my reading of your word? Because 
I don't know how to preach this one. I mean, a friend loves at all times and kinsfolk are born to share adversity. There it is. Like, I don't really know what more to say about that. It's, um, I agree with it. I understand it. Uh, I still don't have a sermon, though. It's, um, I don't know, don't know what that's saying to me other than what it just actually says. And so I just kept reading it. And as I kept reading it, I realized that I had memorized it. A friend loves in all season, and kinsfolk are born to share adversity. And I thought, well, oh, maybe that's it. Maybe we should talk about how important it is for all of us to memorize Scripture, right? Because it's important to memorize Scripture. And I thought, you know what? Maybe the Proverbs, they're just so simple and easy and sweet that maybe they're like God's starter set for how we're supposed to memorize Scripture. You know, it's just a little bite-sized morsel and you can eat it and not worry much about it. And, uh, and someday when somebody asks you, hey, what's your favorite verse of the Bible? You'll actually know one and you can share it. So I was thinking maybe that's what, what God wants to talk about is just memorizing Scripture. But then... God actually used that thought and he showed me something very interesting in Proverbs because they're kind of short and easy and standalone little things. He showed me how tempting it is to memorize a proverb having never learned anything from it. How easy it is to just put it in my pocket like a little priceless pearl of wisdom and I can bring it out and show it to my friend or my coworker whenever I want. And I thought, isn't this kind of one of the fallacies of Christianity? To think that we can memorize a verse or two or 10 of scripture to be able to repeat it and move on with our lives without ever having been changed by the word of God. You see, it's tempting to just memorize the proverb, but the challenge with the proverb isn't to memorize it. The challenge with the proverb isn't even to agree with it. The challenge of the proverbs is to live them. God has an expectation that we, that you and I, that we will be changed by the reading of the word. Do we have, do you have that same expectation every time you read God's word? Because if we do, we can't just glance off of it every time we bump into a scripture that doesn't say anything to us on the first or second or third or fourth reading. Because that was my temptation. My temptation was to pick a different proverb. Just go back to Pastor Drew and say, you know, this one just doesn't speak to me. And I'll bet you there's one that will. And I think I'm just going to trade in this proverb for one. I'm going to, you know, trade up my proverb for one that makes more sense to me. And as I thought about that, I heard God in my spirit, like literally heard God in my spirit say, really? Really? You've got no response to this word of God. How hard did you work to understand that proverb before you gave up on it? Because it hasn't given up on you. And so even as we talked earlier about our fearless moral inventory, I will confess to you that in my fearless moral inventory, I sometimes get lazy with scripture. Sometimes it doesn't say anything profound to me. Sometimes it doesn't say anything at all to me. And I walk away, set it down. I'll come back again tomorrow, see if God has anything for me. And I realize that I owe God so much more than that. 
And if what I'm saying resonates with any of you, if any of you have ever had that dryness in reading scripture and walked away without having been changed, I hope that you will determine also that you owe God more than that because God wants to give you so much more in the reading of his word. So that's how I got here today. That is my wrestling with God, my wrestling with this proverb, and I had so much work to do. This was not an easy one. So I began by looking up every word in Hebrew. Now that sounds like a lot more intensely difficult than it actually was. Here's a trick of the trade. You can go to your Google search bar and you can type in just any verse of scripture and add the word interlinear and it will give you the translation in the original language. Then you still have to figure out what those words mean, but, uh, but I can't say that I took hours trying to translate the Hebrew. I just typed it in. And that means that you can do it too. You can do it too. So the first word, obviously the kind of predominant word in this scripture is friend. It's the first word that I looked up in the Hebrew language. It's a third person singular noun. For any of you that love English, you are going to love today, right? We are going to be talking about nouns and verb agreement and... Okay, I can see how excited you are. So hang with me here. Third person singular now, friend means companion. Now I want to point out that it's a different word than what God called Eve when Eve was given to Adam. She wasn't given as a companion, the same word as friend. She was given to be a helper. And so I want us to hear that there's a distinction, even that companion is a compound word. It starts with calm which means together or with. And then this word, panis. And if you've ever been to Panera bread, what's the word that you in there? Bread. So a, a companion is someone who breaks bread with you. I, I loved that. I loved finding that out of what the word friend means. And I immediately thought of how many times I have had breakfast, lunch, or dinner with a friend and how much more I have looked forward to that meal. How many of you thought of somebody when you thought a, brick brand, a, a friend is someone who breaks bread with me? Did you get an image in your mind? Would you just, next time you're eating with a friend, would you just say a prayer in your heart thanking God for that person? You see, with a companion the mundane human necessity of eating, of taking food and putting it in our mouths is transformed into something completely different, right? When we eat alone, it's just about eating. But when we eat something with a friend, it's about the relationship. It's not about the food. I bet you so many of you can remember times that you have been at a meal breaking bread with a friend and you have no idea what you ate. But you can remember what you said you can remember what you felt. And so in companionship, God actually takes something that's necessity, a mundane human activity, and endows it with transcendence. That's what happens every time you have breakfast, lunch, or dinner with a friend. Would you give thanks to God for that? He has given you transcendence. And so... Coming back to this translation of this proverb, a friend is someone who breaks bread with me and that friend loves me at all times. Okay, cool, that's a good deal. But then I wondered, well, what about the times where there isn't any bread? Hmm. You see, Job had friends who loved to eat bread with Job. They 
had a good old time when there was plenty of bread, but as soon as that bread was taken away from Job, it says that Job's friends took a step away. And as soon as Job's friends, uh, as soon as Job's hands were covered with boils, as soon as his weeping could be heard day and night, scripture said that his friends stood a long way off. Those friends added to Job's misery. They actually became accusers, causing him to defend himself. And, And all of a sudden, those people that he thought were friends looked a lot more like enemies. I can think of that scene in Braveheart, the movie where Mel Gibson played William Wallace. Now, William Wallace could not be stopped in battle, but when his friend betrayed him, he was absolutely paralyzed, just broken. If you remember that scene, Mel Gibson, when he discovered it was his friend who betrayed him, he literally staggered back and he just sat down on the battlefield, utterly done. It was one of the most heartbreaking moments that I can remember in in cinema. It's not a made up feeling though. I know that some of you in here have felt this experience. You believed that you had a friend who had your back, but it turns out that they left you exposed. Or maybe worse yet, they had a hand on the blade that went in your back. For any of you that have been through this circumstance, you know that it leaves you scarred. You know that it changes you. You know that you felt that you once had a heart of flesh and you can feel it calcify. You can feel it harden. It can make the world feel unsafe and it can make relationships feel unwanted. Sometimes I think we can forget that God knows exactly what it feels like to be betrayed by a friend. Even in the moment that it happened, Jesus forgave Judas. He had to forgive because a purpose much larger than that betrayal was set in front of him. God wants us to know that you need to focus on what has been authentic in your life and not get snagged on the counterfeit. Do you know that U.S. Treasury uh, trains their officials to recognize counterfeit bills by having them stare at authentic They don't show them all of the ways that you can counterfeit money. They they don't show them all of the different tricks. They show them authentic bills. They have them study all of the nuances of color, the feeling of the paper. They have them know what is authentic so deeply that the counterfeit jumps out. God wants us to do that with our friends. He wants you to have a real authentic experience of friendship. And so if you have been betrayed, Would you forgive? Would you give that over to God? And would you turn your eyes to Jesus? Would you stare at him and be healed? The next word that I found myself paying attention to was this word kinsfolk. Now, you can hear it, right? Kinsfolk. I mean, the last time I think I heard that word, I was watching Little House on the Prairie, and it it didn't come out of my mouth. It's a word that I don't think I have ever used, kinsfolk. But 
See, what the, what the translators of this version of the Bible wanted to do in a marvelous and wonderful way is they wanted to pick a gender-neutral word that encompassed both men and women so that it could relay the spirit of the text rather than the letter of the text. So the actual Hebrew word here is brother. The text reads, a friend loves at all time and a brother is born for adversity. Now, before anybody gets upset, before we call the inclusive language police, let me say that the point of picking the word kinsman, kinsfolk, is because it doesn't matter if it's a brother or a sister. It could have just as easily have been written that a sister is born for adversity. The point isn't, isn't whether it's male or female. The point is that it's a blood relative. It's a blood relative that we're talking about now. And let's think for a minute about blood relationships. Now, certainly in Solomon's day in the ancient Near East, Middle East, Far East, in pretty much every culture around the world, in every time and space, when you are a blood relation, you have an obligation to family, right? You have an obligation to family. If you are related to a person who is in trouble, they have a claim upon you. You will lose your honor and your respect in your community if you have the ability to help a family member and you don't do it. You don't get the option of choosing. That's the blessing and the curse of family, right? You don't get the option to choose whether or not to get involved when it's family. But here's what happened when we use this gender neutral word that encompasses men and women, brothers and sisters. What happens is that, remember that singular noun that we had here in friend? Well, all of a sudden it's a plural third person noun that we have here in kinsfolk. And so it makes it seem like there's two different things. We have a friend and we have family. Two different unrelated statements that don't intersect. And so what's the intersection, God? What's the point? And all of a sudden this word born becomes vitally important. It's the hinge of the whole thing. I can tell you guys are on your edge of your seat as we diagram this sentence in Hebrew. I love this stuff. I could eat this stuff up. Born bears within it in this, in this sense, not so much the act of being born, the way a brother or a sister, a little baby is born, but actually it has within it the idea of becoming something the way a star is born. Great movie, Barbara Streisand, Chris Christopherson, love that movie, love the music. Being born in this sense actually carries the meaning of becoming becoming something through a process. And listen to this, it also has within it, born, the idea of being appointed to arrive at a certain time. See, when we hear the phrase from the book of Esther, where it says, for such a time as this, we begin to have an awareness of something eternal, that God has a divine hand in the timing of human affairs and that he has actually appointed specific people to be in certain places at a certain time. So it was that Esther was born for such a time as this. That Esther came to royalty at such a time as this. There is a divine hand at work in the timing. 
And we can hear this again in Galatians. I'd love for you guys to pick up your Bible and flip to page 947 to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to start reading in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. And there you can hear that sense of a divine hand appointing a time and a person for a particular need. God sent his son, born of a woman born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. And keep your Bible open to that spot because I want us to return to it. And so what we now hear in this proverb, as we've dug into the words and the verbs, what we now can hear is this rendering. And this is what unlocked the proverb for me. A friend loves at all times, but in adversity, he becomes a brother. In adversity, she becomes a sister. You see, this proverb is declaring an eternal truth of God that there are not two separate groups here. It's not a friend and a family, but actually it's one person, the same person who goes through a process of becoming something more than they were before entering into adversity. It's describing something that I think we all know to be true. That whenever we have an encountered trouble and a friend chooses to stay by your side, when a friend chooses to walk with you, to call your burdens her burdens, to name your sorrows as his sorrows, you have been given something that is much greater than that trouble can take from you. You have been given a gift. Cicero says that crisis tests a friend the way fire tests gold. Most every one of us have been through a fire and we have been tested. And I think that to a person, we would say that having been through that fire has refined our faith so that it's stronger, that it's purer. That when we are through on the other side of that trial, that so many of us can say, praise the Lord, because I actually drew closer to Jesus, someone who stayed by me in that time. And if you are in that fire now, if you've recently been through one of those fires, I want you to look to your right or to your left. And if you see a friend who is standing there next to you, if that friend's eyebrows are singed and smoking, they chose to go through that fire with you. They didn't have to. They love you. Do you know that Jesus says, I will be with you when you walk through the fire and through the flame, you'll not get burned. He will get burned, but you will not. Where false and fair weather friends can wound and harm us, true friends can heal us. They can help us know that the world is safe again. It's in Ezekiel 36, 26. Listen to what God promises. God promises, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your body and I will give you a heart of flesh. Is it possible that the process in which God gives us a heart of flesh is 
takes what's been calcified, takes what's been turned to stone, and gives us a new heart, is it possible that that process involves friendship with one who has said, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you? The adversity we go through will be a blessing. Friends, it will be a blessing if God can show you your true friends through it. Do you know a true friend? Do you? I'm asking, do you know a true friend? I am so humbled when I look out at the people who are here today, people that I've asked to come because they've been friends of mine, I am so humbled to know that there are people in our church who have opened their homes to people that they met here, strangers who they met here on campus who found themselves in the condition of homelessness and they said, hey, come and live with me. Come and stay with me and my family. We've got room for you. We can make room. Stay as long as you need. There are people who have adopted children who would have otherwise been orphaned and you changed your world. You turned your world upside down to love those children. You have forgiven people who have betrayed you. You have turned around and cared for people who have wounded you. You have turned your homes into hospice to care for those who are sick and dying. And you have left the comfort of your own homes to travel to those who were in need of a friend. I would not be who I am if it weren't for friends who are in this congregation. I am changed. I have been through earthquakes. I have been through heartbreaks. I have had border crossing with friends. And if you know how nervous I get at border crossing, God knows why. But I need somebody to stand there with me and say, just be cool. You guys have been there with me. You know, it was someone from this very church when I was a single young adult who went with me when I had to put down my first dog. When I couldn't see through the tears, I should, couldn't drive myself home. Somebody bore that burden with me from this church. You know, you have defended me. You have made me laugh through my tears. You have walked with me. And when I couldn't walk, you have carried me. Do you know that you have prayed for me when I couldn't see the face of God myself? Do you know that I know more of God because of you? Do you know how grateful I am for you, for your friendship? Do you know a true friend? And my sweet brothers and sisters, if there is even one person in here today who is thinking, nope, I don't. I've never had that. I've never had somebody who cares for me that much, somebody who never left my side while I was wanting. May I tell you and please hear it that you have that friend, that you always have, that you have that friend now. And it is not cheesy to say you have a friend in Jesus. Do you know that first century men and women, people of the Jewish faith who knew this proverb, Proverbs 17, 17, used this to somehow understand what they had experienced as the incarnation of God, of God who took on flesh 
to become a brother to us. I mean, where do any of us get the ability to be this kind of friend unless and until we know a God who has freely chosen us in friendship? From the beginning of all creation, God has chosen us. Beginning with Abraham, who he selected out of all the tribes of the earth. And Abraham was called friend of God. And all the way up through Jesus, who literally laid down his life for his friends. God has freely chosen us, chosen to call us friends. He has no obligation to love us. We have no claim on him. We've got nothing. But God freely chooses to enter into our calamity, to step into our adversity. God freely chose to deal with our problem, our trouble of sin and death. He stepped into that one for us. And he took the blame of that for us. And he literally died being our friend. The more we press this truth into every fiber of who we are, the more we let this truth transform us, the more we understand that God has a claim on us. Flip back to Galatians. In Galatians, as it talks about becoming children, we understand that we don't live as orphans, that we have become part of the household of God. Galatians 4, so with us, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave. You are a child. And if a child, then you are also an heir through God. Do you know what this means? It means that God has a claim on us. It means that we don't live as orphans, that now our brothers and sisters actually have a claim upon us, that when we receive the grace and the new life and the freedom of Jesus Christ, that we bind ourselves to love what he loves, to care about what he cares about. Now, I want you to listen because I'm going to read another scripture and some of you are going to think that I just went off and you don't know how I got there. But I believe this is God's word for us today, church. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' disciples asked him if, they would, if he would tell them about the end times and how they could recognize it. And what Jesus made clear is that no one, not even he, knew when that time would come. And so I am not here to prophesy and say, oh, these are the end times, but I want to repeat what Jesus said to his disciples on this question. Matthew 24 in verse 12 says, and because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold, but anyone who endures to the end will be saved. And this is the good news of the kingdom that will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. 
I wonder if in our solitary, myopic, self-centered world, we hear these words of Jesus and we think, oh, this is about my endurance. This is about a test of my faith. And if I can make it to the end, I will be saved. I will get across that finish line. But you see, Jesus isn't talking about faith in this context. Jesus is talking about love. And love never is worked out as singular, isolated people. Love is always within community. Love always happens among friends. Jesus is saying that because of lawlessness and wickedness, our love will grow cold. And friends, it's happening every day around us. Can't you feel that temptation to withdraw to draw our borders, to get inside our houses, to be safe, not to step in the trouble of somebody else. What if Jesus' words aren't talking about the endurance of our faith? What if they're talking about the endurance of our love? I mean, what greater testimony could there be at such a time as this, that in adversity, through adversity, we have loved each other? We have loved our neighbors. We have loved our enemies. We have loved recklessly and selflessly. This is something worth proclaiming to the nations. This is something by which we will be known as those who love Jesus and who love what he loves. Once upon a time, there was a boy named Stephen who became one of the world's most renowned storytellers of our time. He's been nominated for and won pretty much every honor that you can in his craft. And his films have changed the modern age of storytelling. Many of his films have been preserved, like preserved, in the National Film Registry in the United States so that we will always know the impact that they've had on our collective consciousness. We don't want to forget or lose what he's shown us as an eternal truth. In 1982, this boy created an homage to friendship. He took what he remembered from his own experience of longing for a friend, and he created a relationship between a lonely little boy named Elliot and a lost creature named E.T. You see, they had to get over their innate fear of each other. They were so different. They didn't have any common language. They didn't have anything in common. They had to demonstrate to each other that they didn't mean harm, that they actually meant good. And in the demonstration of this friendship, there was actually a bond that was created in them, something that became physical, a physical bond in them. When Elliot went to school and E.T. stayed at home and discovered beer in the refrigerator and just had a few, Elliot also, at school, felt drunk. And when E.T. started to die, Elliot also started to die. He said to his mother simply, Mom, I think we're dying. Because of their friendship, Elliot's family and his community did not have an option to not enter into E.T.'s calamity. They had to make it their own. And through the testing of this friendship, through life and death, 
and life again. Lasting bridges were built. Alien cultures became known to each other. And everybody got to go home. Let's take a look at this clip. Do you know there are so many more things in this world that unite us than divide us? Do you know there are so many more reasons to love each other, to create friendships, than anything else? In Solomon's day, it was believed that if you had the ability to ease the suffering of someone and you did not do it, that you missed the opportunity to fulfill why you had been born. My brothers and sisters, I ask you, what is the purpose to which we are being called now, today? Do you know that every one of the backpacks that Clay mentioned, every one of them will be put into a child's hands, and in a few minutes, we are going to have the opportunity to write a prayer. But do you know these children don't need one prayer from you. They need a prayer from you every day of their life. Will you, every day of your life, pray for the children of Los Angeles? Do you know last week, through the blood that we gave, we were able to save 111 lives. Yes, that's awesome. But do you know how many more there are to save? Will you pray and keep on praying? Will you give and keep on giving? Do you know that every day, every moment, a heart is broken, a heart is calcified and withdraws? Do you know that you can take up that heart and hold it in your hands and pump life back into it until it is ready to go back into the flesh of that person? Do you know that you can change someone's life? Church. May we be found as true friends to this world, to our neighborhoods, to our city, at such a time as this. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that you have chosen us to be your friends. God, you had every reason to abandon us to sin, to abandon us to rebellion, to let go, and yet you didn't. You gave everything, everything to maintain your relationship, to lift us up. And so God, would you make us followers of you in a new way? Would you help us declare that we will be part of the solution? Would you help us step into the adversity of a brother, into the hopelessness of a sister, would you make us more than we think we are? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.